This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making the truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. I remember, when you subscribe, you're essentially upgrading your mind. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower? There's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. The one great question for humanity has always been, where do we come from? Great minds have wrestled with this since the dawn of consciousness, and various theories have been produced, some enduring and others not. Science has certain ideas, and religions others, but none are conclusive, nor universally accepted. The honest truth is that no one really has a definitive answer. The Bible speaks of fallen angels, and even giants, seating the daughters of men, and other ancient texts carry similar sayings. For the greater part of the history of humanity, the keepers of such thoughts and knowledge have tended to be a small sector of the population in positions of power, mainly political and religious, and in more recent times, scientific. But thanks to the free flow of information, first through books, and now the internet with alternative shows like Veritas from all over the planet, are available to challenge the powers that want to be, from being the controllers of our right to know and think freely as sovereign people. And for this, and much more, our special guest is Dr. Rita Louise, coming up right now on Veritas. Soul healer Dr. Rita Louise, PhD, is a naturopathic physician, the founder of the Institute of Applied Energetics and the host of Just Energy Radio, author of the books Dark Angels, Avoiding the Cosmic 2x4, The Power Within, and the latest man-made the chronicles of our extraterrestrial gods dr louise grew up in a haunted house but that is not where her interactions with ghosts spirits 
and attached entities ended. Over the years, she has worked with countless clients who have been affected by attached entities and has helped eliminate them from their lives. To learn more about Dr. Louise's work and even her radio show, visit her website at soulhealer.com. And directly from Richardson, Texas, I would like to welcome Dr. Rita Louise to Veritas. Hello, Dr. Louise, and welcome. How are you? I am great, Mel. How are you? I am fantastic, and I'm so glad to finally, and I call this probably the continuation of the nice conversation we had last year. You and I attended a conference, and there were so many people there that we, we couldn't just uh, expand what we were talking about. So I'm glad that you finally made it over to Veritas. And I am just so glad to get to be with you because the little conversation we did have was great. And I get two whole hours, just you and me. Absolutely. You're the most important person in my life for the next two hours. So I'm glad that (laughs) we're here. Anyway, I have learned a lot about you in the past few days since you sent me your book. Tell me first, for those who may not know who you are, tell me more about you. Who is Rita Louise? How do you come into into these topics growing up? Well, it's very interesting. In most families, you're required to do chores in order to get your allowance. In our family, we were required to read a book. And I was never interested in Nancy Drew or, you know, I don't even know what kids read. You know, today it would probably be like Twilight series. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. And I found myself drawn to the archaeology and anthropology area in the library where I pretty much read all of those books. And then I got fascinated with the concept of ESP and started studying information about that kind of at the same time in in eighth grade. We had to do a, you know, this is what I want to do when I grow up uh, project for our final exam. And I wanted to be an archaeologist, but we had to find out about the educational parts of it. And they said you had to have a PhD if you really wanted to do anything in archaeology. So I so I let it go because in eighth grade, who wants to think about getting a PhD? I didn't. And so I became interested in, in the concept of ESP. And at that time, there was a TV show called The Amazing Kreskin, and he was a mentalist and had ESP. And another show called The Sixth Sense, which was a kind of a crime solving kind of show where the uh, main character of the show had ESP and he would use it to solve murder mysteries. And so he would go into a room and like touch something, pick up a glass and he would see uh, Mary and she gets into her car. And, you know, of course, they always drive down Highway 1 in California, which is very windy. And there's a steep cliff off into the ocean and her car goes off the cliff. But he runs outside just in time to stop her to find out that her brake lines had been cut. Ooh. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be psychic. And I studied for years thinking that if I became enlightened, I would be psychic, which didn't happen. And I'm not going to give you the whole rest of the psychic story, but it started me down this path of studying esoteric knowledge, esoteric traditions. I'm very well versed in the workings of the chakras. I've studied Kabbalah. And so when shows like Ancient Aliens came on TV or more interest in that archaeology area came on TV, I was just... (laughs) I was sucked in, Mel, just sucked right in. Not that I necessarily believed at that time that there were ancient aliens, but just the whole concept of revisiting the idea of antiquity. You know, and I was already used to reading these dry, boring, dusty books that no one else read anyway. Um, And so I just dove in. And got involved. And thus, the outcome was this man-made, The Chronicles of Our Extraterrestrial Gods book. And as I'm reading the book, I'm I'm just going back in time and remembering growing up. I mean, having met an archaeologist when I was very young, and a lot of what I kept hearing didn't seem to fit within the the box, if you will, and, and, and within the book. You know, I grew up a Roman Catholic, and, and it seems that when we always say step out outside the box in that time it was more step outside the book and it was very difficult because i was always grabbed to be put back inside that book or inside that box and looking at your book and looking at all these all these researchers ancient and ancient aliens as well we 
hear a lot of, 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 of mythology. The word mythos, which by the way, you probably know that it's, it's, a, it's completely misunderstood in today's society, when in, in reality it means that it's a, an affidavit of accuracy in history signed by priests and kings. So I wonder how much of our history has been mythologized and we need to de-mythologize. What's your opinion of that? Oh, I think that there is so much truth in mythology. I mean, you know, are the names changed and the details a little bit distorted? Mm, probably. <clears throat> but even when we look at the book, um, is that a 100% accurate description of Jesus's life and times? We have four different books and they tell four kind of different stories. And I think mythology falls into that same category. And it also, since we're now talking about Jesus, why is it that we portray him as, you know, white, blue-eyed, when he was in a region of the world where that was probably not to be found? At the same time, some of his disciples, you know, all these names, Matthew, John, Peter, those were not names from that area. Why do you think that was changed or, or concocted? Well, I mean, they were definitely westernized and brought more into contemporary society to make it be more relevant to the people and the population of the different groups. I mean, one of my biggest things and <laughs> some of the things that I say, some people say I'm, I'm a bit of a blasphemer, but oops, oh well. Um, I think that uh, Paul, you know, Simon Paul, he sold it. I think that if he had not come along, that Jesus would have just remained an obscure individual who had a messianic complex that lived in the Middle East, or they would be some obscure cult of Jewish tradition. But I don't think it would have become this worldwide revolution that it has become today. And how about the image of Jesus? Why, why do we see it in, in a way that chances are he didn't look like that? I don't know. And it's really hard to dig back far enough. That, you know, the, what do I want to say? You know, early, early representations of Jesus kind of have him look the same. And so where it went from what he really looked like to this idealized image, I have no idea. And I don't know that anyone's actually try to trace that back to find like the earliest representation or if there were early representations. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, if you really think about it, it probably wasn't until Christianity was accepted as uh, the religion of the Roman Empire that anyone actually decided to draw a picture of him because they were all hiding in secret. And, you know, they just do use their little fish symbol to represent Christianity, but they didn't use Jesus's face. You know, they use little symbols. And also, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the oral tradition. Uh, even at that time, the the writings after Jesus was died didn't start until, what, 50 years after. So if you and I, Rita, witness an event today and tell the people, but we don't write it until 50 years later, is there a possibility that the information may be changed? Uh, you know, the grapevine effect, exaggerations. Uh, in summary, can you trust the information if it's written 50 years or more later after the event, the event happened? I'm referring to the New uh, Testament of the Bible, of course. I think, you know, again, that there are grains of truth. Um, okay, so just to share this with you, Mel, so I went to Catholic school, except my dad is Jewish. And so, you know, we got this little Jewish cultural thing going on. Sure. And you tell the story, there's the story of Jesus feeding, you know, the the masses with what two loaves of bread and five fish, five fish, two loaves of bread, not that much food, you know, but in a nice Jewish way, they had a little nosh. Uh, <laughs> and, but that story was... You know, if you just take that one story, it's kind of like, you know, it started out with a little bit of fish. The crowd wasn't that big. And now we're talking about an amphitheater full of food, people with enough food to go around for everybody. And I think anybody that is telling a story is going to somewhat sensationalize it. 
as time goes on, because you have this core and it's going to change and it's going to grow and it's going to, they're going to want to have more impact with the story. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And how much of the Greek mythology do you think may be real? I think quite a bit. Um, one of the things that we did in man-made, <clears throat> excuse me, was surveyed mythology from around the world. And the stories that were included, we wanted to find more than one culture that reported the same story. And if it was the Greeks and the Sumerians, you know, they were kind of close by proximity. And so the story could have originally been a Sumerian story and moved into Greek tradition. But if we found the story in Greek tradition and then found the same story coming out of South America, that added a lot more credibility to both accounts, not just the Greeks and not just the South Americans, but to both accounts. One of the things that you find is that the ancient chronologers uh, of Spain, when they went into South America, they were, one, astonished by their stories and and couldn't believe them. And the way that they would report their findings, you know, or what they would hear, and I'm just seeing if I can find, there's a couple of quotes that uh, are kind of hysterical to me. Well, maybe not. Maybe not in this moment. But, um, you know, but even to them, they had believability issues Oh, here we go. <clears throat> According to the most certain and true opinion, there could not have been inhabitants in this land before the universal deluge, for it is certain that all men sprang from our father, Adam, and that in the period between Adam and Noah, so wide a disbursement could not have taken place. How is it possible that these Indians can have any knowledge of the deluge? Which does two things. It tells you that, one... The Spanish chroniclers didn't really believe what they said. And two, they the Indians didn't take on the Spanish story. It was their story originally. You see, there are two things here. We hear of the indigenous people who could not see the the ships coming. Only the elder or the elders could see it because the people had no conception of that. Couldn't the same thing? be said of the conquistadors who came down and heard all these stories, not only in South America, but in, in the Caribbean and, and, and even even in what's now North America. And they heard, as a matter of fact, let me just read from, from your foreword, uh, written by our mutual friend, uh, a respected researcher, Brian Forster. He says that many indigenous tribes, through oral tradition, speak of the seeding of life on the planet. Again, they had no conception of this. And as you say, and this is something really interesting, the, the, uh, the, the exact time when we were, when things started, the date October 23rd, 4004 BC at 9 a.m. And you think, okay, why is this date important? Earth was created, but there was no carbon dating. And why do people simply take it for granted that someone with a, a robe or a uniform says that and we have to believe it? I have absolutely no idea. There Now, one thing I do find interesting is that, you know, we talk about like the Mayan calendar and that was that this last cycle started in um, 3,114 BC. And then in Hindu tradition, uh, Krishna left the earth in 3100 BC. And in Judaism, their calendar starts, and I'm going to hope I get the right date here 3762, 52, I don't know, 3700 BC. What I find interesting is we have three different traditions that are talking about this date, almost that 4004 BC, not so close, but close enough. Um, in Judaism, that was the date of the creation of the earth. In South, in Mesoamerica, the Maya, they talk about uh, the planting of the three hearth stones and it being a creation event. 
one of the things that I went looking for and could not find, or I would have loved to have included it in the book, was what happened. What made multiple cultures think that life started over again or that there was this new cycle of creation happening? I, I don't know that I believe that they tracked the stars and it had to do with the procession of the equinox. I Maybe, but I even find that kind of hard to believe. But again, if they didn't have any carbon dating or, or sophisticated technology as we have today, it was all oral tradition. It's what they exactly. heard. But the question is, as you're saying, they heard the same thing from a lot of cultures that were supposedly not connected. And that leads me to the next question. When you tell people who discovered America, and I know you do discuss this a lot, what do people tell you? Well, Christopher Columbus. Why do we keep forgetting of all the indigenous people around the world that were there? Do we say Christopher Columbus simply opened the route for Europe? You know, I when I give presentations on the book, I will ask that question of the audience. And, you know, most people yell out Christopher Columbus. And every so often you'll get, you know, the Vikings. That's right. Once in a while you'll get someone that will say the Native Americans. And then I'll go up to them and go, but didn't you think Columbus first? <laughs> That's right. And then you thought something else. Um, apparently, um, I was talking to, well, it was either Tom or Jerry uh, from the Tom and Jerry show. I get them two mixed up. I think it was Tom. And he's from Norway. Norway. Right. And I said, so what do you guys believe there? Do you believe that Columbus discovered America? And he said, no. But my husband asked a friend of his at work who is from El Salvador, and he said Columbus. It's really weird. But, I mean, we're totally programmed. We are brainwashed into certain ways of thinking, and that's just one example of the brainwashing that we've experienced and we believe is true. Exactly. And we see that all the time during the the days uh, coming towards Columbus Day, you hear now with social networking, you hear so many people, you know, say, really, is this, this is the discovery of America. But I've even heard that the Chinese were around this area. And apparently when the emperor found out, he burned all the ships. And that's why we think that they never left their land. But we hear all, all these stories around the world and the primordial questions come to mind all the time. And I would think that this is probably one of the reasons why you ventured in writing your book, the who are we? Where do we come from? Those questions. Have you have you been able to, to find some answers? Well, I mean, I think that who we are and where we come from is much different than what we were taught in school. Um you know, if people want to believe that we were created by a God that lives in heaven, well, I guess that would be kind of a true statement. But uh, <laughs> the big G God, you know, this God that created the universe, um, you know, there is a God that does live in heaven. But I actually consider that God a small G God. I consider that God um as a person and not as this universal life force, you know, and this. Uh, omnipotent being, energy, you know, this indescribable essence of everything in the universe, past, present, and future. And it's something that none of us can describe at all. And I'm glad I'm speaking with you, Rita, because sometimes I feel guilty by speaking of all of this, and perhaps it could be the old programming that comes in. And also because I know a lot of our audience, you know, probably have, have uh, religious beliefs, and I don't... Folks, there's no no reason for it to be offending anybody. We're just trying to look for answers. And sometimes we have to step outside the book, outside the box, although we were not allowed as youngsters to do that. Now we have the freedom of, of choice and we have free will to do it. But when we think of heaven, what is heaven? Even my daughter the other day asked me, Dad, where is heaven? Where do we go when we die? And those are very difficult questions to answer because... Could it be, for some people, Greece, uh, heaven was probably Mount Olympus, where God lived. In Japan, we have Mount Fuji. In Peru, we have Machu Picchu, home of the gods. What's your opinion of this? I mean, I believe, what you know, when we think of heaven, we think of that's uh, 
the place that God lives. But if you turn it around just slightly, it's God's home. And you're right. You know, in mythology, they are, God is always associated with being on the top of a mountain, Mm -hmm. you know, Mount Olympus, Mount Fuji. Um, But it seems more like a physical location when you hear descriptions of what is in these locations, you know, the home of Zeus, they talk about his palatial palace and his throne and this and that, but it's not just his little house up there, his little mansion. You know, there are multiple homes for the different gods and there are trees and rivers and animals and all of these things that exist in heaven. But here comes a little bit of the catch. Other gods had homes as well. So, for example, Zeus had his home on Mount Olympus. But then you talk about somebody like Poseidon and his home was underneath the water in the ocean. Or when you talk about Hades, his home was deep within the earth. And they're all described with, you know, having structures inside and having multiple people living in there. And one of the things that comes out of uh, Hindu mythology, which I found to be an eye opener, when they talk about the homes of the gods, they're called sabas. And to make a very long story short, these things were enormous. And so, for example, one of them, one of the smallest ones, was something like 100 by 300 miles in length and width. And that was the small one. And what I found fascinating with a little ancillary note to it is that they could travel at the whim of the owner. And so when we think of heaven, we think of someplace beyond the clouds. But could they be, could they be more like motherships that could travel around the heavens, could travel underneath the waters of the ocean? Mythology seems to uh, suggest that. And I transitioned into thinking that way into thinking that what if, when we think of God, it was probably, if you have seen the movie Prometheus, did you watch that movie? I did. When we watch that movie, we start thinking, wow, this is probably put into science fiction, but I wonder how much truth there is that a scientist may have been sent here to seed the planet, to help terraform it. And all these stories for religions around the world were just simply created to divide the world. Because I have no problem with what's written on the religious books. What I have a problem with, and I think you do too, is the interpretation of that information in those books. I mean, it definitely is a matter of interpretation. One of the things that does seem fairly clear is that at one point in time, And where it seems like this occurred was not much after the flood. I mean, we can go into why I had that thought. But the gods backed off and they they gave rulership to mankind. And I think we started taking their thoughts, their rules, their regulations and putting our dogma on it and saying, well, this is what the God said, you know, and interpreting what they had experienced And it evolved into something that made us be so separated from the truth that now we're we're having a difficult time reinvesting in what the reality could have possibly could have been or I think was thousands of years ago. And the problem is that a majority of people still feel the programming. And when you present information such as this, you know, alternative theories, they don't seem to, I don't know if it's that they don't want to grasp it or that their ego does not want to accept that what they have been taught is probably a lie or maybe half a lie. Well, I mean, it really does change the paradigm. But what I find interesting, and when we started writing the book, and I, all right, I'll be honest, I can't remember if we made a statement in there. I think we did. But it was really designed to address people in the Western world, because if you leave the Judeo-Christian world, you know, tradition in India, 
they believe that there are sky people that came to Earth. In China, they believe that there were sky people that came to Earth. In Native America, they believe that sky people came to Earth. It's only in the Judeo-Christian world that that whole idea was eradicated. And so we're really not teaching anybody anything new. We're just re-educating them on what what's fact and the the rest of the world, just not to us, which obviously is a much later belief than, I mean, even if you think about the Greeks or you think about the Sumerians, let's use the Sumerians. I mean, they believed in star people coming down to the earth and that was part of their religion. And, you know, and then it gets into that whole idea is, well, is my religion better than your religion? That's right. And that that's the part that I think that has kept civilization separate divided all the time and you know all we have to do is look back look at the dark ages do you think that the moment in which uh, the truth was uh dare we say monopolized or hidden from us was during the council of nicaea or perhaps during the burning of the library of alexandria during that time Ooh, tough question i mean i think that it was a number of different things that happened I mean, I think the Council of Nicaea kind of locked the fate because they said, this is what we're going to believe as a group. Having the Library of Alexandria burn, we just lost all of that wisdom. And so there was no place to go back to. There were no archives. There was no library. There was no computer or floppy disks or any place to go look at this ancient tradition again. It, I mean, think about it. The same thing happened with the Maya. They had thousands of codexes, and we are left with four. And so their whole culture is a mystery to us, and we could have known so much about them and their day-to-day -day life had the Spanish not burned all their books. Do you think that perhaps the Vatican has uh, a number of those books in underground, the catacombs? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they have a lot of other stuff that would be very interesting to get your hands on. Um, I mean, because if you think about it, they have records that go back almost 2,000 years, including the Inquisition and all right. of all kinds of stuff. Um, whether they have documents that, you know, not talking about the Mayan documents, but documents that go into deep antiquity. I don't know because they really weren't an organized group until, you know, a few hundred years after the the Library of Alexandria burned. Have you come to any conclusion as to why this all happened? And I'm talking about all the way back from Dark Ages, Council of Nicaea, the burning of the Library of Alexandria, even until now. It seems that there's a concerted effort to keep us in the dark like mushrooms. Because they fear that if we find out the true origins of who we are, and I think the biggest secret, the biggest conspiracy of all, it's the, the, uh, the truth about our own potential. Why do you think that this is kept secret? I mean, the only thing that I can speculate is it's all about power and it's all about control. And if, if we become uh, separated from them, then how are they going to, how are they going to make any money? They'll have to sell some of that gold. <laughs> Or That's property, right. and and they'll lose their hold, they'll lose their footing. Um, you know, even when we talk about the Catholic Church, you know, we think, oh, it's a church, they're good, they're honest. Not really. You know, not in the big picture of things. They they run themselves like a corporation. And what do how do corporations stay in existence? They sell product. And what's the product that the church has to sell? Beliefs. <laughs> What you just said is so such an important piece of information, because if we look at what just happened recently, we had this pope who abdicated, and this hasn't happened in almost 700 years, and then we get all the cardinals, let's call them the board of directors, and they choose their new what? Their new CEO. And for a religion that has a lot of bow of, of poverty, they are, if not, wealthiest corporation or entity in the world and i'm not criticizing those people who go to church every sunday because they are innately good people 
But when you look at the big picture and you tell them, they become defensive. They don't want to listen. And I would love to find a way to discuss my perspective. What would you say to them? I I usually just avoid the conversation. (laughs) Well, usually they bring it up, you know. Oh, no, I've gotten very good. I mean, because I have always worked in the paranormal area and I live in Texas. So you know how that is, Mel, since mm-hmm. you lived here. Um, I just don't go there because it's not worth the headache because you're only ever going to be wrong. And so it's, you know, and they're not going to change their mind. And I, I, I don't know how to fix that or change that. You know, I am so glad that shows like Ancient Aliens or Unearthing America or, or any of these shows that are showing alternative opinions are out there. Ghost hunters, uh, you know, shows about mediums and psychics are out there because it makes the that group of people potentially be exposed to it in a very non-threatening, non-one-on-one, potentially combative way so that they can make up their own mind. You know, having worked as a psychic for for years, and still do, and um, the number of people that are in the group that we're talking about that have open themselves up to, well, maybe I do have intuition or maybe there is a ghost in my house or maybe, you know, whatever has grown. I mean, in the last 20 years, it has started to blossom and it is, it's wonderful. And my feeling is, is get them onto one area that they might open up because it might become a domino effect and they will just keep expanding their area of openness to incorporate some of these other things. And it makes you wonder, because I see the internet as a double-edged sword all the time. I think that it's probably the new Gutenberg Press. Uh, At the same time, we get a lot of misinformation, disinformation. But, you know, for the greater part of, of history, of humanity, the people who have kept all this knowledge to themselves, it's just a, a small sector. You know, we, we think of them as the 1% of the population in positions of power, political, religious, and now even scientific. It's, 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 this, it's this, how can I say, coin. One side you have religion, and one side you have science. And if it doesn't fall in one of those sides, then what you're saying has no validity in their eyes. But now with the advent of the internet and alternative news sites, radio shows like yours and like mine, do you think we can now challenge the powers that want to be uh, from being the controllers of, of the right that we have to, to think freely, independently, and as sovereign people? I mean, I think that that's happening. Um, you know, there are, and I'm going to just talk, you know, like in the alternative history area, you know, there's people like Graham Hancock and Michael Cremo that are putting out material, me, that are putting out material that are, You know, we're not traditional academics, but it's resonating with people. It's connecting with them on core levels. And so they're starting to believe it. There are so many people. I joke around on my show about how my husband and I will watch TV and then talk back to the TV. And so, for example, uh, there was a show, uh, Mankind, the History of All of Us, but we couldn't figure out whose history it was unless you were a white Anglo-Saxon male that was a slave owner. <laughs> you know, it, it it really did not have any re- relevance to reality. It, you know, it was just this giant propaganda piece. I, I really couldn't understand what they were doing, but we talked to that show a lot. And um, I don't know where I was going, but anyway... <laughs> I was going somewhere, but it left my brain. Well, you were mentioning the alternative researchers, Graham Hancock, uh, even Zachariah Sitchin. We'll talk about him in a in a minute. I respect a lot of his work. I respect Michael Tellinger, but I think you and I agree on something: is that uh, a lot of people think that the Lost Book of Enki that Michael Tellinger uses as perhaps uh, not science fiction. It is science fiction, folks. This is something that Zachariah Sitchin uh, wrote. But just one one example of, of Michael Cremo. A few years ago, and this is an interesting story that you may have heard, he went to give a presentation in 
a uh, reputable university in somewhere in Russia. Well, when the the higher ups in the university found out what he was going to be discussing, they canceled it. But another group of people, including some professors, decided, wait a second, you know, this is very worthy. Let's let's take the venue and make it somewhere else. So they took it outside of the university, and now more than double, triple the number of people that were expected to attend at that university lecture attended where he was going to go. Why? Because people said if they're trying to block him from speaking, he may be saying something important. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, I haven't experienced that personally, but in your story, it makes me think of Sam Osminagosh and the Bosnian Pyramid. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is a PhD archaeologist. I mean, he's got the papers to back up what he's talking about. In the research that he's doing on the pyramid, he is bringing in scientific people running scientific tests, having scientific analysis of uh, materials that he's getting, you know, lab reports. It's not him running around going, well, this is what I think, and this is what I think, and this is what I think. He's like, here's the lab report that says this leaf that we found on the surface of the pyramid dates back to 24,000 BC. It's not his opinion. It's a fact. And they still diss him. They still tell him that he's crazy and that it's not a pyramid. And the attacks have grown a lot in the past few few months. I've seen that. And I was very surprised. I had recently interviewed uh, Dr. Robert Schock, a researcher, professor. I admire him. But when I asked him about the the Boston Pyramid, he he's one of those that does not believe that is it is a pyramid. He mm-hmm. thinks it's a natural formation. And the same thing happened with another researcher I interviewed last year. The name escapes me. But we were discussing the... Yonaguni pyramids and Graham Hancock and his wife have scuba dived there. There's plenty of footage to show that that is impossible to be a natural formation. Yet this researcher says, no, that's underwater. It's erosion. It makes the rock look like that. Perfect stairs and a pyramid. How is that possible? It's not. (laughs) It's simple. It's not. I mean, Robert Schock and I have had a couple of conversations about the Bosnian pyramid, and we have just decided that we'll agree to disagree, mm-hmm. you know, and, but it's okay. Um, whatever. Ha, has he been there? Has he been at, at the, yes. uh, but he, he has, was there, but he was there really, really early on in the excavation when they didn't have very much uh, uncovered and then they were shut down for a while and now they're back doing more research, doing more excavation. I would love for him to go back and do another assessment, but I don't know if that's on his plan of things to do or not. Right, right. And I think he's open-minded enough that he may he may revisit what he said. That's one thing I found about him. Mm-hmm. He, he, he can, you know, if he's exposed to enough information, being a geologist that he is, Let's hope that that happens. But let's take a moment to go back to to the Dark Ages uh, during the 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 time the church became rich and powerful. Which this is something to me that I could never understand. If Jesus was a poor carpenter, why all this wealth? Why all this power during the the when when the, Columbus came to America? To me, that was more a visit from the Vatican. That was more trying to bring religion to this area of the world and taking all the all the riches. And then we'll talk about gold too. But at that time, the biggest fear people had was being excommunicated. If you were excommunicated, basically you, you, you thought that you died and you would spend eternity in the fires of hell. The religious programming forced people to live inside the box prescribed to them. Do you think we have a similar programming today's day and age we have a similar programming hmm i think it is starting to (laughs) all right i have kind of some mixed feelings i think on some in some areas and on some levels it's starting to change and the programming the paradigm is breaking up but then you start looking at what's going on politically as far as you know, our freedom of speech and That's what I mean. uh, what's going on with media. Um, mm, 
Maybe not so much. You know, I, I try not to think about, well, this guy was, you know, talking up about uh, some topic and and he committed suicide by putting three bullet holes in the back of his head and they didn't find a gun. You know, I, I, I try not to think about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so it's kind of a mixed bag because in some areas things are opening up. But then if you look from a very political point of view, not so much, especially if you want to say anything about the government and the current administration. That I didn't want to lead you to that, but that's exactly what I meant when I said, do you think this is happening today? It doesn't have to be religious. You know, people who question the official story. Let's take 9-11 as an example. Mm-hmm. People who, who think of that. And you couldn't, you couldn't question the story. I would say probably for the first three, four years, anybody who questioned the story back then, haha, what came down on them, society, government, they would immediately think of you. If you're not with us, you're with the terrorists. Now people are, are you know, we can, we can talk about it. But there's always the... I don't want to say fear because I don't want to inject some of that power into the powers that want to be, but more of the concern that one day shows like this one, shows like yours, shows like some of our colleagues may be shut down or maybe we would have to apply for a certain license in order for us to be able to operate. Do you think the time will come in which dark ages, when it comes to information, may return because the advent of internet has brought all this that may be getting out of control when it comes to to disseminating this material. Well, I from what I understand, they've already tried on a few different fr- few different fronts. Um, you know, the newest one that I've heard was that they are talking about taxing the internet, which I don't really know how they would do that. But you know, I guess it would come from your subscriber, you know, whoever provides you with the internet, you would have to pay a tax through them. Um, They had talked about um, making it where only major companies, you know, like Yahoo and Amazon and whatever would show up on your screen and you would have to pay to access other people's sites. And so shows like yours and mine and my private business, which is very web dependent, you know, or magazine or publications or sites that put out information would fall into that. You really can't access it unless you pay a premium. And once you start putting money to it, people are going to be less interested in pursuing it. Exactly. And they would go back to what's free and what's free does not necessarily mean folks. That is the truth. Some people say to me, oh, Mel, you charge for your show. Well, folks, we have to be able to support it somehow. And that's why we don't have any commercials. You have other shows that have to have commercials. You turn on the TV. And believe me when I say it, you will never, if you turn on MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News, you will never hear something that affects those sponsors behind the scenes. So this is when I say, is this ever going to happen again? the equivalent of excommunicated. We have the NDAA, and we I don't want to divert from our topic at hand here, but we have all these draconian laws that are, instead of allowing us to open the gates of truth, it seems that they're trying to close it because the Ministry of Propaganda, even though now six companies own 90% of the media, they still cannot control, and they're seeing an exodus of people going to sites like yours and mine to get the information. Exactly. And then they don't like it. So, but, you know, to put the nail, you know, to put it down even more, that would just be another way of, you know, shutting those sites down. I mean, one of the things that you hear happen is that, I mean, for me, example, I had, this was a while ago, I had Jim Mars on the show and we were talking about, uh, I don't remember, you know, but it was a conspiracy thing talking about the money. I think it was we were talking about his Rise of the Fourth Reich book. Mm-hmm. I got hacked big time, hacked all my sites. I got taken down. It took me over a month to get back up. And I know that it, it was intentional because it was the next day. Boom. You know, and I think that things like that happen. You think, oh, that's just kind of an accident. But what if it wasn't? What if it was intentional to see, you know, to see if it'll just take you down? That's right. And it's it's not a matter of, of conclusively saying that it happened, but what if? And I think the 
they have the power to do that. I mean, we've heard that the, they don't need any warrants to, to look at our emails. They probably are listening. Not probably. They are listening to Hi. us probably right now. Hi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe they're learning something, as Dr. Paul Aviolette <laughs> said during, during an interview where we got disconnected, uh, cut off about 25, 26 times. But uh, this is another concept I'd, like to dis- uh, concept I'd like to discuss with you, the concept of belief. I people who listen to this show know I don't believe anything. I either know or I don't know. Why do we trust people uh, just because they're telling us something? Because it's a book, because they have a uniform, they have a white robe. Why do we trust people? Why do we believe, Rita? I have no idea. I mean, I know that for myself, I have a little believability meter, you know, and either it passes the smell test or not. Um Hopefully, as we move forward, more people will get little BS meters and be able to tell truth, you know, their truth. I mean, because I think what's true for me might not be true for you, you know, in its totality um, and might not be true from somebody else. And so that all has to be taken into consideration. But to just take information that, you know, well, it was on the Internet, it has to be true is is stupid. I mean, it's just stupid. <laughs> well, same thing with that website called Snopes.com. People say, hey, mail, that information you posted there has been debunked by Snopes. And I said, fine, let me start looking into this. And some of the information they correctly debunk. But then I started looking into the people who are behind Snopes. I'm not going to demonize anyone, but anybody can go out there and find out. It's just a couple. It's just a couple that does research and they have a certain belief. I'm not going to say which one, but they have a certain belief and anything that goes against that belief, they will debunk. So whenever you hear somebody saying, Snope said that it's not true, you better watch it. Do your own investigation. That's that's very important. But again, going back to belief, and, and it, I guess I could say I believe something. I don't know if there's extraterrestrial life, but probability tells me that there is. So, yes, I believe in extraterrestrial life. It means that I'm not sure, but I'm also cannot, I cannot deny it. But we go to doctors and we trust them with their lives. Sometimes we don't even know them. We step on a plane. We give our lives to the pilot. Why do we trust people in positions of authority without questioning? But again, it's part of that programming. You know, there is so much we don't recognize how much programming we carry around with us, you know, from what you're saying, trusting the pilot, trusting uh, the doctor to just the behaviors we have and the social concord that we have with other people. I mean, it's part of that programming. This is what you're supposed to do if you want to be in or interact with the society. I mean, you brought up, you know, trusting your doctor, um, I have so many patients, so many clients that call and they're seeing their doctor and they have some health issues because I do a lot of work with people with health concerns and they're seeing their doctor and they're like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I try talking to him, but he doesn't listen to me. And I, you know, this medication is making me sick. And I look at them, I go, well, fire him. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, are you paying insurance? And they go, yeah. I go, well, that means you're paying this guy's bill. And if you don't like him, fire him. You know, if you go to the supermarket and you don't like the ice cream you bought, you throw it away, you buy a different brand. So why do you have to feel like you need to keep going to this individual that doesn't treat you right, or you don't think they're competent, or they're not listening to you and your needs? There, there are other ones out there. Go find someone else. Well, that was my little soapbox. Sorry, (laughs) because (laughs) we're told that doctors know best. And if you tell anybody, (laughs) for example, if you learn of an alternative cure and you know what happens with the FDA, and this is a total different topic, but I know you discuss this in your radio show, too. If you even talk about alternative cures immediately. You're 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 just told that you're crazy, or you're trying to you know sell a a a, a snake oil, etc. So it's almost as if they have the blessing of big pharma. Even I've spoken to doctors, Doctor Sherry Tenpenny. I've spoken with uh, people who were involved in the pharmaceutical industry who say that 
doctors depend on the pharmaceutical industry to survive these days. It's it's a it's a relationship that cannot be broken. So when you have the establishment do that, how are the people supposed to step outside of that box? Well, and when you go to your doctor and you tell them that you're thinking about doing something alternative or you would like to do something alternative, they just look at you like you're crazy. So you don't even get their permission. You know, I I don't go to the doctor, thank God. But I do take my dog to the vet and I had taken her because she fell off the bed and she hurt her back. And I was just kind of concerned about her and took her to the vet. So other than this vet, you know, touches my dog and says to me, your dog is obese. I'm like, thanks. Um, you know, she said, well, you know, we could do an x-ray. We could do this. Here's like 15 different prescriptions, which didn't impress me at all. And then I said, well, you know, I have a lot of friends that are chiropractors and maybe I think I'm going to take, take her to go see the chiropractor. She had like a conniption in her office. She's the vet. Well, she was like, well, that could kill him and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, have you ever gone to the chiropractor? <laughs> I don't know. You know, That's but, right. they, you know, but they, they can be just like a re- religious fanatic. You know, there's the physical body and the only way to cure it is by using these chemicals. It's like, but okay, but until the turn of the century, we didn't really have any chemicals to use. We were using all natural things. You know, if you had a headache, you would take witch hazel. Well, witch hazel is what they developed aspirin from. You know, or if you had a lot of anxiety, you would take valerian root. Well, guess where Valium came from? It's the chemical one of valerian root. And so to say, oh, well, you can't take valerian root instead of Valium is is ridiculous. That's in my opinion. No, absolutely. And sometimes I have trouble sleeping, and that's exactly what I take, and it, it's not habit-forming, it's natural. Um, but this, to me, it's probably one of the biggest conspiracies of all, is the, the way they are planning our obsolescence. You probably remember when appliances would last so long. People who have a refrigerator that hasn't been fixed for 50 years, or even in New York City, they have a, a light bulb there in a in a fire station that just turned 100, and they, they have a birthday for the light bulb every year. But then we have planned obsolescence. I think the same thing is taking over into our lives as well, because of course, we can be living past a certain age, and I wonder if it's because the system cannot support it, or is it because, Rita, and this this goes back to your book, and I'm not going to deviate that much anymore, do you think this could be so that we don't pass a certain age because we would learn so much more? In the past, even the Bible says that at one point, people used to live a thousand years, and maybe then it went down to 200, 100. Do you think this is on purpose? Well, I think that our behaviors make it be on purpose. Um, You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I uncovered, which is a little bit out there, but it's just kind of a speculative point. One of the things that occurred, and I'm trying to think, it started about 30,000 BC, which I believe was when the flood actually took place. With that said, we started to incorporate grain as in breads into our diets, you know, and even if you look at the Bible, it's like people lived really long lives and then the flood happened and then they got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Right. And what was the big change? We had a lot of dietary changes, which included bread. And if you look even at society today, 50 years ago, someone that had issues giving birth, you know, getting pregnant and giving birth, there were more issues in delivery than there were in getting pregnant. Now, how many women are there that can't get pregnant? And it's because I think there has been so much denigration to our genetic makeup that we're annihilating ourselves, you know, with drugs or without drugs, you know, because we're getting to where as a species, we're not really able to reproduce or the basic core of our genes are getting messed up. I'm not a doctor, but I'm willing to bet that a lot of the women who cannot conceive these days is because of diet 
And I'm talking about probably consuming diet products, consuming a lot of preservatives, MSG. I've spoken to doc doctors, alternative doctors who talk about this, and it's important to pay attention. But now that you're talking about the the uh, uh, the corn, we have to take a one and only intermission in a minute. But I think of, uh, I think it was the, the early 1980s, wheat used to be good. And apparently, I don't know if it was Monsanto or I forgot the company per se, but wheat used to be tall, the, the actual plant. And th when there was too much wind, it would kill the crop. So they made wheat to be shorter so that the wind would not affect it. But with that DNA change, that uh, tinkering with the, the, the genetic code of that, uh, the, the wheat, they changed it to a way that now it's affecting people. And that's we have all these the problems with gluten, problems with people who have issues with wheat. This is another example. But when we come back, I want to discuss something very important. And this is, this is about longevity. The Anunnaki came here for gold. What if, what if this gold that they needed, they needed to protect themselves from UV rays? And I want to discuss that when we come back. This is a, another fascinating portion of your book. How do people buy your book, listen to your radio show, and so on? Okay. Um, my book, Man Made the Chronicles of Our Extraterrestrial Gods, is obviously available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. It is now available in the brick-and-mortar Barnes & Noble. Yay! Uh, it's available on Kindle. But if you want a signed copy, you need to go to my website, www.soulhealer.com. That's S-O-U-L-H-E-A-L-E-R.com, soulhealer.com. And Mel, that's really the gateway to everything Rita Louise. I can give out a bunch of different websites, but from there you can get to the radio show. You can find about, out about the products and services I offer. I have a training program. Go there. That site's like 700 pages worth of material. It's huge. huge. And I have to tell you folks that what you, what you hear is what you get. Because when I met Rita... She's exactly the person you are listening to right now. Sometimes, you know, people change a little bit their personality when they come to talk to you. But she's exactly who I met last year. And I look forward to exploring more of your book and your research when we come back. Don't go anywhere, folks. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. I'm here with Dr. Rita Louise. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
is Stephen Bassett, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.